Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org. I know that that autocratic coalition can't take power again, that it has to be shrunk, that it's got to be confronted, that it's got to be defeated. And that's joyful work. It's an honor to be involved in that. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is Steve Schmidt, a longtime Republican political strategist who worked on the campaigns of President George W. Bush and John McCain. He served in the White House as a senior advisor to both President Bush and Vice President Cheney and was largely responsible for the Supreme Court nominations of Justices Alito and Roberts. But in 2018, Steve formally left the Republican Party, and in 2019, he co-founded the Lincoln Project, which was created to help pull Republican voters away from President Trump. Uh, we're going to talk about how that went and much more. Steve, welcome to Burn the Boats. It is good to be with you. Steve, at the formation of the Lincoln Project, the founders, you among them, wrote this. The 2020 general election, by every indication, will be about persuasion. Our efforts are aimed at persuading disaffected conservatives, Republicans, and Republican-leaning independents in swing states and districts. As you well know, President Trump did pretty damn well with Republican voters in 2020, who still overwhelmingly, even after January 6th, support him. Is the era of persuasion over? Well— no, it can't be. And look, when you look at the performance at the presidential level with President Biden, you got more votes than any presidential candidate in American history. When you look at the drop off then below that down ballot, one of the groups that was very decisive in this was independent white men. And Democrats in this fight are going to have to be able to win races in rural America. Because the divide we have is destabilizing to our democracy, frankly. And so when you look at the totality of the race, you have millions of people who were persuaded through evidence, I suspect mostly, that this was the worst president in American history. He was a crook and a liar. He was responsible for hundreds of thousands of dead Americans through his incompetence, malfeasance, and negligence, that he was in these last months poisoning democracy, poisoning faith and belief in the legitimacy of the system with the espousing of a big lie that was always coming, that was always predictable, that you saw cynical elites like Cruz and Holly jump onto. And you saw it end in an act of seditious violence against the people of the United States. And I just, you know, just want to say one thing about this, which is that for a period of time, the capital of the United States fell. The American flag was ripped down, literally, and a MAGA flag was hoisted in its place. And that's a fascistic flag. That's a flag that stands opposed to the Constitution of the United States and the American Republic. For the first time in American history, 156 years after Lee surrendered to Grant, we saw a Confederate flag breach the rotunda of the Capitol, Confederate battle flag. 
on its way to desecrate the floors of the House of Representatives in the United States Senate with its presence. Steve, how do you apportion responsibility for that outrage? On the one hand, it is so easy to direct all of our ire at the immediate perpetrators, those who broke the glass, who breached those sacred grounds and and defiled the people's house. But on the other hand, and I hear people in your camp acknowledge this, if over the course of four years, you've actually come to believe in your heart that Democrats are blood-drinking pedophiles and are going to steal Christmas, then in some ways, the turn to violence is only logical, which is it's setting you up to, I hope, direct blame where it really lies. So let's look at all of the elements of this. And first, though, we got we to gotta ask a question. And the question is this, do we or do we not have an autocratic movement in the United States of America that has fascistic markers and is comprised of the following elements. What do you think? Yes. I think the evidence is unmistakable. Yes. For anyone who knows history and for anyone who can recognize those same fascistic elements in certain leaders on the right today. So let's go, let's go around the flywheel here, right? And talk about how it all comes together in the nature of what we have to do. So first element, charismatic leader, autocratic disposition, who builds a cult of personality. That cult of personality requires two elements to be a member in good standing, obedience and loyalty. In fact, the Republican Party, third oldest political party in the world, Republican Party's platform is eviscerated, and really the only requirements in the platform now are obedience and loyalty to Trump. And you think that still holds? Right. That is, Trump is the leader of a cult of personality on top of an autocratic movement. That's not enough. What else does he need? Well, you need the propagandists. All of this is always sustained by lies. And there's a straight line from Sean Spicer's first lie about the inauguration to the deadly lies about COVID and ultimately the big lie that incited the insurrection and the attack on the Capitol. And it is important to understand the nature of Trump's lying is different, typically, though he's mainstreamed this now. But Before Trump started this, most politicians lied for personal expediency. I didn't have sex with that woman to avoid embarrassment. It's a strange business. It requires puffery, right? Most places, if you went to work and talked about how great you were, and you talked about all the ways the politicians talk about themselves, like you want your coworker institutionalized, right? <laughs> right. Right. So it's that type of lies, lives of, of aggrandizement. Trump's lies were always about lies of power, the autocrats lie. So when Spicer goes out there and he tells you, you must believe what the leader tells you is true, not what your eyes tell you is true. This is the point that Orwell's making in 1984. When at the end, Winston being tortured by the party official is asked how many fingers I'm holding up. And and Winston crying says, I only see four fingers. I only see four fingers. And the party official says, you'll see as many as the party tells you were there. Lies of authority. But it's not enough to have a lying leader of a cult of personality. You need the propagandist to spread it. Fox News, OAN, Newsmax, Sean Spicer, Kelly McEnany, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Baghdad Bob 
level lying with malice in their hearts towards our system of government and the Constitution of the United States. You're speaking as if the threat hasn't even been remotely vanquished. I mean, I I don't see the Lincoln Project taking a victory lap. I hear your language really being prospective about what Trumpism means yep. going forward. The arrival of Trumpism surprised a lot of people. And four years later, it now dominates our political discourse. But as quick as its arrival was, its departure is by no means guaranteed and not even tied to Trump himself. Is that your view? Is that the Lincoln Project's view? Yeah. And let me keep going around the wheel, right? Because I, we're going to get to everyone on right? But like the propagandists and the leader aren't enough. So who was it that we saw ransacking the Capitol? A hundred years ago, these people would have been wearing black and brown in Italy and Germany. Uh, They're the SA. And what they're made up of mostly are society's losers. And they're not losers because of how much money they make or that they didn't go to college, maybe because many, many, many of them did maybe most of them, they're losers because of their sense of grievance and entitlement. This idea that they're owed something for doing nothing. And 20 years ago in our society, most of society would have looked at those people and understood exactly who they are. But the thugs, the menace of violence, so this amalgam of fascists, the Proud Boys, teeming with menace and violence, right-wing political violence, white nationalists, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, QAnon, And the list goes on. Religious nuts, an amalgam of of toxic, toxic people. But that's not enough. You always need the cynicism of the elites. So let's look at Josh Hawley of Stanford University, Yale Law School, a professorship at Oxford, Ted Cruz, Harvard Law School, universally loathed, but everybody talks about his intelligence, his intellect. But men without a core, without a soul, amoral in the discharge of their sacred duties and trust as United States senators, pissed all over their oaths. But it's always the cynicism of the elites who think that they can manage and manipulate the whole thing, who will do the business with the Trump, try to exploit those people, the losers of society out on that mall, ready to do the violence while they sit and plot. And then there's the last element, and I want to talk about this uh, Lincoln Project activity, which is the financiers and the hundreds of millions of dollars of money that corporate America has put into this. We are um, organizing and reaching out to partners and hopefully have had an impact in dissuading corporate America from giving money in support of sedition, in support of the poisoning of faith and belief in American democracy. But there's another reason also. After the ransacking of the Capitol, after a Capitol policeman was beaten to death, after the Trump flag was raised high, desecrating the people's house, 147 members stood up to make a vote for the first time in history to take a federal action to decertify the results of an election that had been certified in the states on the premise of a lie that had it succeeded would have led to the downfall of the American Republic in its 244th year. But that action would have thrown out a majority of black votes just because in 2021. That's never happened before. 
And so how many American companies have made statements in support of racial justice? How many have supported Black Lives Matter? Yet they're going to fund a new Jim Crow, the effort to take away the franchise of millions and millions of black voters because they voted against Donald Trump. So I don't see that money ever coming back to Kevin McCarthy's super PAC, to the NRCC. I don't see how these companies ever do it. But if they do, we're prepared to run pressure campaigns that will be aimed at employees, at shareholders, at the executives that have the hallmarks of the aggressiveness that we took the fight to Donald Trump. Because we want to weaken the autocratic movement that we all have to understand we can never lose another election to ever again. Never. And the battle you're seeing play out now in the party, the Republican Party, is not dissimilar to what happened to the Whig Party in 1854 with the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed for the expansion of slavery westward. So the slaver and the abolitionist couldn't stay in a coalition any longer, and the Whig Party collapsed. So you had 147 autocrats, and then you have a pro-democracy conservative, Liz Cheney, who votes to impeach Trump and now is being threatened to have her leadership position taken away by the autocratic faction. So there's a fight that's going to play out now in American politics at the primary levels in 22, in the Congress and leadership fights, and it's between the autocrats and the conservatives. Can you call a majority movement a faction? Because that's my fear, is that the entire party is not only tainted by association, but overcome with this compulsion. You look at those gearing up for the 2024 presidential, and they're all in this camp. And the central issue, I hope you'll disagree with me, but I don't think you will. The central issue on the Republican side in the the next presidential election is going to be the big lie. It's going to be how the 2020 election was stolen. Am I wrong? No, of course not. It's the threshold issue. And so the party will be consumed by that lie. But democracy will be poisoned alongside the consumption because democracy requires faith and belief in the legitimacy of the system, right? And so wherever you look in the world, when you see a coalition of autocrats and conservatives together, If and when they take power, the first thing that happens is the autocrats always crush the remnant of the naive, pro-democracy, conservatives in coalition with them who believe that they could tame the tiger, that they could ride the tiger. And so what will happen is many establishment Republicans, such as they are, and very few, if any, covered themselves in any glory during these Trump years, but to the extent that a couple of them retain some semblance of of normalcy, right? So they'll be rolled over by the autocratic side in the 22 primaries, like the Belgian army was by the Wehrmacht in 1940, right? They'll be crushed. Now, some of those people will make it through to Congress, increasing the numbers of truly batshit crazy people like Lauren Bulbert and Marjorie Taylor Greene by some exponent number. However, most of them will be able to be picked off in districts that will make it possible to expand the Democratic majority in the House, which is essential, obviously, because Kevin McCarthy is another villain in this who's completely unfit to ever hold constitutional office 
is an inciter of the violence with his repetitions of the big lie and also someone who rose again in defense of the disenfranchisement of 10 million, you know, black voters, at least in these states with the decertification, not understanding, or maybe he does understand. I don't know. But his failure and his betrayal of his oath of office is just staggering. Well, let's not give up yet, at least in this conversation, on the possibility that the Republican Party can rediscover its core principles and a spine to go along with them. Historically, the way autocratic tendencies or bad actors like this were flushed out is you had a functioning fourth estate. You had voters who would ultimately come to their senses and and act on good information and throw the bums out, right? It looks to me in drilling down on the Lincoln Project's strategy that you've given up on that. And as cynical as it may seem, your strategic decision is to go after the financers. And you'll still put out some great videos, but I don't think you're banking on them influencing the Republican primary voter as much as campaign dollars are going to affect the candidate field. Is that fair? Well, look, again, I think that the nature of the fight is around all those elements that I went through. And you have to understand the nature of the fight. And so defunding an autocratic movement to the tune of north of $150 million and making companies be consistent with their stated core values, right? I think is an important element. If Kevin McCarthy is the face of, and we're going to make him the face of, the disenfranchisement of millions and millions of black voters, right? Same with Rick Scott at the senatorial committee, right? Our position is Ted Cruz, And Josh Hawley must be expelled from the United States Senate. We want to see Ron Johnson censured in the United States Senate. And I think when the facts become clear about the activities of at least five or six House members, they should be expelled as well. We want to see the 14th Amendment, Section 3, applied to insurrectionists. No one wants revenge. No one wants retribution. want accountability and justice for an attack on the capital of the United States. We shouldn't have bottom-down accountability. We're just the incited, pay the criminal price. This was an attack we all watched with our own eyes. We saw the incitements. We saw the incitements of the president. We saw the incitements of the members of Congress. They knew how dangerous that situation was. We have to understand that we live in a country that has an autocratic movement that's taken root, that's teeming with menace and violence. That's out about 40% of the country is into it on a bad day. And that's very, very dangerous. And that, that fight's going to define our politics for all the balances of our time involved in the civic life of our nation. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. 
Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. I think the most terrifying thing for me that I have to keep reminding people of about January 6th is that it was by no means the worst case scenario. And the inauguration of of Joe Biden in no way means the passing of Trumpism and these autocratic tendencies. But are your efforts and and the efforts of others to hold the insiders accountable, is that enough to counter the big lie? Or is it so ingrained now? And you refer to the facts coming out and how the facts, once they're known, will compel action. With our media ecosystem as fractured as it is, are facts going to reach enough people to create the kind of momentum that you would have to see for the expulsion of senators? Well, at the end of the day, right, you know, there's a question, right? It's this, right? Imagine a guy who is hiking up a mountain and our job is to make him drop his backpack. And I got an unlimited supply of weights with me to do that, right? Are we going to get him to drop the backpack? There are some people that will never drop the backpack. They'll crawl up that mountain and they would crawl over broken glass. I don't think there's any of those people in the Senate. And so at the end of the day, Texas and Missouri have Republican governors. They can get rid of two unpopular guys that bring shame to the Republican conference in the Senate and who are doing tremendous damage to their ability to move forward and to be able to raise money and to reset a decent conservatism in the country. So there's alignments of self-interest that could be made to happen where they just get tossed overside because they're not worth it. And in the end, having watched all the tapes to understand what they did, they deserve expulsion from the United States Senate. And so when we look at what happened, what they did by orders of magnitude is worse than anything that Joseph McCarthy ever did. And I just want to say like one other thing about all of this. I'm being totally dead serious about this. I think they couldn't have picked a better person than one of America's greatest ass kickers, Lieutenant General Russell Honore to get to the bottom of the security review of the Capitol. I think he's going to figure it out. There were definitely acts of heroism, but the failure is just staggering, the security failure. And I have a serious question. After the last couple of years watching all types of different black people be shot by police for no good reason at all, in many, many instances, just completely unjustifiable, crazy, murderous, The door of the United States Senate swings open and there's a guy who walks in carrying an American flag. Capitol's been overwhelmed. He's dressed like a Viking with racist tattoos all over him. And there's a cop right there. It's it's truly amazing. I mean, I say if he was dressed like bin Laden, what would have happened to him? Right. I mean, those people were there to kill within that mob were people looking to hang the vice president and to kill the speaker of the house. And it might have been a massacre if they had gotten into the right room. We'll never know. I think we'll have a good idea. We already do based on the initial chatter, based on the fact that you don't bring tactical zip ties to a peaceful protest. But I want to visit something you just said referring to the reset of a decent conservatism. 
Do you believe that is possible in today's Republican Party? You left the party out of no, out of frustration. You have alluded to inherent racism within the Republican Party. So you're hoping against hope with that phrase. I'm saying, look, hope springs eternal, right? <laughs> yeah. So, for example, look at Nancy Mace, who is a freshman member from South Carolina, who seems to be like a totally normal person, who's been on television, right? She seems to be like a reset to something that could be decent again, though she's profoundly outnumbered. But it's a start. Over time, there's only two ways to win a fight. You bring your opponent to submission or they bring you to exhaustion. There's no place to meet in the middle here with the seditionists. What do you make of all of these calls for unity? Turning the page. Well, unity does not mean kowtowing to a small number of people who have demonstrated bad faith over and over thousands of times, right? So let's talk about what the president said, like in a call for unity, right? What he called for was a unity of purpose on the behalf of the American people to rise to face great crises. And there's two of them that he talked about specifically, right, that we should all of you be unified on. That's fidelity to American democracy, number one, and crushing the coronavirus and getting economic relief to people. Now, unity of purpose has to be based on facts, has to be based on reality. There are many things the American people are unified about. The president is saying to the American people, let us be unified in confronting these challenges. There's an opposing definition of unity that John Cornyn, for example, was making, right? That the president asserted his presidential authority by signing executive orders. And John Cornyn said, well, he's being hypocritical about unity. Unity does not mean the submission by the winner to the loser's sense of ego and entitlement, particularly in the furtherance of the stroking of the ego of the leader of their cult of personality. And when it comes to hypocrisy about invoking unity, there's none greater than Cruz and Hawley calling for it. No. Unity without no. accountability is farcical. No, that accountability requires it. We're a nation of laws. It must be equal justice under the law. The idea that being a United States senator immunizes you from criminal activity, immunizes you from moral accountability. Nonsense. The magnitude of their betrayal in our times is exceeded only maybe by an Aldra James, a Robert Hansen. What they did is unforgivable, all of them. And the majority of the people in this country demand accountability and justice for an attack on the government of the people, by the people, for the people, as that government was exercising its constitutionally mandated responsibility to continue the process of the transfer of power. Now, until Donald Trump became president from 1797 through 2021, that transfer of power was peaceful. This was not a peaceful transition of power. The transition of power isn't a, isn't a moment, it's a process. And this one was blood-soaked because of Donald Trump. And when you think about all the great things that have been invented in America, you think about 
cars and airplanes, medical advancements, the ingenuity, electricity, telephones, all of it. The greatest invention to ever light the world from these shores is that, the peaceful transition of power under the rule of law in a government where the people are the sovereign. That is the greatest thing that's ever been invented here. And it speaks to the greatness that was George Washington. King George III asked what would Washington do? And he was told that he'll go back to Virginia. He couldn't believe it. He said if he does that, he'll be the greatest man of this or any age. He voluntarily gave up power. And then his successor in a closely contested election that was about even, deciding the House of Representatives, John Adams voluntarily leaves office. A peaceful transition of power, uninterrupted since 1797. What you're highlighting with those examples, and in fact, everyone since then until FDR, is just how much our system depends on, not on laws, but on practice. And I I think the last couple of weeks especially, but really the last four years have exposed just how vulnerable that system is to the autocratic thinking of someone like Trump and his minions. It is. And, you know, when you think about history, you think about the worst presidents ever. You know, Lincoln was preceded by until Trump, the worst president in the country's history, Buchanan. And then when he was assassinated, he was succeeded by the second worst president in the history of the country, Johnson, who was impeached and who was incompetent, who did not agree with Lincoln's vision about how to bring the country back together. The man who did, who tried to fulfill Lincoln's vision to the best of his ability, was the man who beat Johnson, and that was Ulysses Grant. And the last time a president refused to be with a predecessor or successor in public on the way to the inauguration was that one when Grant refused to ride in a carriage with Johnson out of a sense of honor because Johnson had so debased Lincoln's legacy in Grant's view. Well, (laughs) this has been a pretty dark conversation overall. I want to see if we can end on something of, of a high note. What are your hopes for the next four years? Do you see the possibility of uh, sunlight breaking through? I mean, the big lie feels pretty darn entrenched, but if you can hold its biggest purveyors accountable, if you can elevate the Liz Cheney's, and I can't leave out Peter Meyer, what a heroic representative he turned out to be, is there some hope for a renewal? Well, look, I think that we're in a fight. And I can't tell you who's going to win that fight. I know that that autocratic coalition can't take power again, that it has to be shrunk, that it's got to be confronted, that it's got to be defeated. And that's joyful work. It's an honor to be involved in that. I think we saw a flawless transition. I think Joe Biden's the right man at the right moment. He might well turn out to be not just a good president, but a great president. But like... When we look back at events, my junior in high school, my daughter is studying World War II, right, in the high school history class, right? And they jump right to Normandy. She's going to study Normandy. It's a piece, an epic day. But there's meaning beyond the day that shaped why that day happened. And so when you look back 100 years from now in this moment in time, right, or 50 years from now, I believe we'll get through this and the right side will win the fight. 
but it requires fierceness, not complacency. And the, the pro-democracy side can't be the gentle side of the fight. This has to be confronted. We can't be naive about what faces us. Can't keep looking away from it. It's dangerous. Can't be naive about that. You know, Donald Trump will be out again soon. And he'll be holding rallies. His family will be out there maneuvering to seek elected office. I mean, I'm sure Marco Rubio is terrified about the thought of the Ivanka primary that's probably looming. When you look at this, it's going to go the direction of the California party, right? Like as the party becomes more extreme, it will it will shrink within the totality of our voting population and in our country. But shrinking it nationally means potentially watching it expand to consume the whole of the Republican Party, right? To see it go to a next level of crazy. That's terrible for the institution of the Republican Party, but that may well turn out to be good for America. I will take that trade-off any day. (laughs) Steve, we end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question. What is the bravest decision that you've ever been a part of? Uh, Well, I'm not going to – I think it's wrong to – ascribe bravery to your to yourself i don't think that's you know that's something you get to do but i'll I'll tell you what i thought was a brave decision it's barack obama with the mission to kill bin laden he staked his entire presidency on the success of that mission which as you know they lost a helicopter during it you almost had a disaster but if that mission had failed Carter Redux. Would have been Carter Redux. I mean, it it was a moment when someone was all in, right? If you look at the statements, right, of the preceding administration that I was part of, it was pretty clear, and I suspect it's true, that that mission would not have been green-lighted in terms of going into, you know, encroaching in, you know, Pakistani sovereignty. Might have dropped a bomb on the compound. But the decision that he needed to be killed at close order and he needed to be identified, we needed to know for sure, right, that the last thing that guy was ever going to see in his life was an American sailor coming to kill him was an important thing. I think that's the ballsiest decision, political decision, presidential decision I've seen in my life. Well, thanks for sharing, Steve. It's been great having you. Thanks again to Steve Schmidt for joining me. In the next episode of Burn the Boats, we'll continue to explore the Lincoln Project and the pushback against Trumpism from conservatives. I'm talking to Dan Barkov, star of two viral videos from the Lincoln Project last summer. He's also a former Navy SEAL and founder of Veterans for Responsible Leadership, an organization founded to help counter Trumpism. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Don't you know that you're a grown up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.